the British flag wasn't flying at all. Not even the loss of a princess could change a centuries-old royal tradition. You see, the flag never flies over Buckingham Palace unless the queen is in residence. It's been said of the Christian life that joy is the flag that indicates that King Jesus is residing in the palace of our hearts. Joy is the key. And the book of Philippians is all about joy. But its message is that the flag does fly at half-mast. You see, the joy of Jesus can be experienced in the midst of death, or danger, or difficulty, or heartbreak, or struggle. A Christian's joy is not dependent on smooth, pleasant, carefree circumstances. It's amazing to me that a letter full of joy, all about joy, begins with a couple of guys in jail. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. It was 62 A.D. Paul is on death row in a Roman prison, waiting for the wicked emperor, Caesar Nero, to hear his appeal. Paul isn't sure whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. You know, it's hard to imagine a gloomier, more depressing situation, but you'd never know of his circumstances by the tone of his letter. Rather than be bummed, Paul is brimming with joy and confidence. This book is full of rejoicing and celebration. What if tomorrow the doctor read you the results from your tests and announced to you that, yes, you have a cancer? And yet you drove home with a peace in your heart and a newfound appreciation for every single day that you live. Or maybe tomorrow, what if your boss handed you a pink slip But rather than panic, you started to laugh. You got excited about the next door that the Lord was going to open since he had closed that one. Or, what if tomorrow, news arrived that a friend had died in an automobile accident. You're obviously upset. The tears are streaming down your cheeks. But there's rejoicing in your heart because you know that your friend is now in a better place. Are those reactions to calamity possible? Paul would say, yes. If Jesus lives in you, it's not just possible, it's expected. Joy in tough times or joy at half-mast is Paul's theme as we flip through the book of Philippians. We're going to learn tonight how to possess that joy. Prisoner Paul writes to the church at Philippi and to its leaders. He reminds them of his prayers for them, that he is thankful for what God has done and will do. One reason Paul rejoices under any condition is that he has the confidence that what God starts in our lives, he finishes. Notice verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise. Now, guys, I can take you to my garage. And I can walk you around in my garage and I can show you all of my half-completed projects. I'm notorious for starting stuff that I don't finish. But I'm not the only one. There is actually a museum in Florence, Italy, dedicated to Michelangelo's unfinished works. The whole museum are the works that he began but never finished. Jesus Christ is just the opposite. Whatever Jesus starts, he's faithful to finish. You may be tired tonight. You may be discouraged and on the verge of defeat, but you need to take heart. 
For Jesus never abandons a work in midstream. He will complete that which he has begun in your life. Chapter 1 continues Paul's prayer for his friends in Philippi. In verse 9 he prays that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. As your pastor, I have this fear that the more you get to know me, the less you will like me. People hear the Bible studies and all and they think, oh, what a cool guy. But I wonder what you would think if you really knew what I do. Some of the mistakes I've made. If you really knew that I bite my fingernails and pick my nose. Or that I get angry with my kids. Or I've even said harsh things a time or two to my wife. You know, getting to know me is pretty risky. And this is why it's so critical for you not to put your eyes on any man, but to put your eyes on Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the only person of whom it can be said, the more you get to know him, the more you're going to love him. That's so true of Jesus. He has no defects. He is thoroughly cool. And this is why Paul prays that your love for him will abound as you grow in knowledge and in discernment. Paul prays in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, it's easy to differentiate between the good and the bad. But Paul prays that we learn to discern between the good and the best. All too often, the good can be the enemy of the best. Pray that you can discern the things that are excellent. A joyous Christian looks on the bright side, and that's what Paul does in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. While in prison for his faith, rather than throw a pity party, Paul preached the gospel. The Roman prisoners afforded were afforded round-the-clock surveillance. A soldier was always nearby, often chained to the prisoner. Over time, Paul had witnessed to the whole palace guard. Every time a new shift turned over, a new prisoner, a next new guard next to him, he would launch into another witness for Jesus Christ. You see, Paul saw his circumstances at, not as inconveniences, but as opportunities. I hope you see your circumstances the same way. Not as inconveniences, but as opportunities. Paul's imprisonment had also inspired other Christians to boldly share their faith. If Paul could share Christ behind bars, they could do it in the open air. And in verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Paul knew that this sudden rash of Christian witness was fueled by mixed emotions and mixed motivations. Some of the preachers were truly inspired by Paul's example, but others figured that while Paul was in prison, out of commission, this was their opportunity to make a name for themselves, to enhance their popularity. But look at Paul's conclusion in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. 
This doesn't mean that motive is not important in ministry. It certainly is. A person's motive is vital to God, but it may not be that important to the person who receives the message. For you see, the power is in the message, not in the mouthpiece. It reminds me of the mom who walked into her son's room and chided him to get up and to go to church. He pulled the covers over his head and he said, oh, mom, I don't want to go to church. Why can't I just sleep in? And she replied, there are two reasons. It's Sunday and you're the pastor. (laughs) Not every pastor has the best intentions. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, God says, My word shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. God will honor His word even when it's preached from a dishonorable motive. It's been said one of the greatest proofs of the power of the gospel is its ability to shine despite some of the shady people who've preached it. Understand, Paul is in prison facing possible execution But his concern is not to live or die. Come what may, Paul's passion, his concern, is to shine for Jesus Christ. Read chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die will its gain. You see, Paul is a bottom line kind of a guy. He's put all his eggs in one basket. Jesus is all that really matters to Paul. If he lives, he lives with Jesus. If he dies, it's Jesus in heaven rather than in prison. Either way, Paul can't lose. You're really not ready to live until you're first ready to die. Paul's deepest desire is not to save his own skin. It's to serve his Savior. Paul is caught up, you see, in a cause more important than his own convenience, his own comfort, even his own life. No sacrifice is too large. He'll go anywhere, do anything for Jesus Christ. And in the end, it's interesting, no one lived a fuller, more satisfying, more joyful life than the Apostle Paul, the one who gave his life away. What's your earnest expectation? What's your bottom line? What really matters to you? Paul says in verse 23, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul is torn between wanting to live and wanting to die and go on and be with Jesus. If Nero orders a death sentence... It'll send Paul to heaven. How can that be bad? If he lets Paul live, then he can continue serving the church and being a blessing to these Philippians. And of course, that would be good for them. Death would be heavenly. Life is more opportunity. In verse 25, Paul is confident that he'll be released and that he'll continue to serve the Lord. But he wants the Philippians to do their part. He says in verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul tells the Philippians three things. To stand fast, to stand together, and to stand up for Jesus Christ. Are you standing fast in your faith? Standing together with other believers? And standing up for the gospel. Verses 29 and 30 tell us that like Paul, the Philippians had also been granted the privilege, the opportunity to suffer for Jesus Christ. 
And he hopes that they too will experience this joy at half-mast. A Christian will encounter persecution. But he can put up with the hassles when he realizes the perks. And in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, we have a list, a few of the consolations that are ours in Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and here they are, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The blessings we've received in Christ should free us to be a blessing to others. Since Jesus lives and meets the needs in me, then I can live and meet the needs of others. Paul says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Years ago, a rural, 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 I'll get it out, a rural, that's a farming community in Minnesota, they met to decide the name of their new town. And it didn't take long for differing opinions to arise and for a squabble to develop, and the meeting turned downright ugly. That is, until someone shouted out above the noise, Let's have harmony! The word harmony just sort of hung in the air. And then suddenly, everyone realized that they had their answer. And just like that, the town became Harmony, Minnesota. In Philippians chapter 4, we'll discover that all was not harmonious in the church at Philippi. There were a few squabbling sisters And it's as if Paul shouts out here, let's have harmony. And he shows us how. By everyone adopting the attitude of Jesus. He says in verse 5, let this mind or let this attitude or mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Understand, following Jesus begins by adopting his attitude. To live as a Christian is to live the Jesus style. Jesus was God. He could have thrown his weight around. He could have used force and intimidation to get his way, but he didn't. Rather, he laid aside the perks and privileges of deity and he became a man. He declined special treatment. Verses 6 and 7 tell us, Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's what God did for us. The Phillips translation puts it, Who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. In verse 7, the word translated made means emptied. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of all of the divine advantages. While among us, Jesus lived like one of us. The king of the universe became a simple servant. Jesus humbled himself. And in the end, God exalted him. And this is Paul's point. If we live an other-centered life like Jesus, if we care not for ourselves but for one another, then in the end, God will exalt us with Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul tells the Philippians, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
We're never required to work for our salvation. God works for us and he works in us. He plants in our hearts both the desire and the dexterity to do his will. But what God works in, he wants us to work out. We're not the catalyst, but we are the channel through which God works. In other words, God has a part and you have a part. It's been said, man can do nothing without God and God will do nothing without man. God works a miracle in us and revs up our engine, but then it's up to us to drop it into gear and get the ball rolling. God puts the life of Christ in us. It's up to us to adopt and live according to the mind of Christ. Paul says in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and murmuring and disputing. Once there were two battalions of Maryland firefighters that answered the same call. The firefighters actually got into a fight over which group was responsible for extinguishing the fire. And as the house burned, the county police were called in to separate the fighting firefighters. This describes what's happened to a lot of churches. We're murmuring and disputing with each other while countless souls are burning in the flames of hell. Paul's life was being poured out as a drink offering, he says, or a wine that was spread out on a sacrificial piece of meat that gave it seasoning and gave it flavor. In essence, Paul was being added to the Philippians as the seasoning, as the spice in their lives. Paul was the divine tenderizer. His life was intended to spice up the lives of the Philippians. Do you live for yourself or do you live to add flavor, to add spice to the lives of others? In his absence, Paul hopes that to send Timothy to these Philippians. Timothy was a trusted ally. Paul knew that he had pure motives. And Paul trusted in Timothy's character and in his ministry. In chapter 2, verse 25, Paul mentions Epaphroditus, the messenger that the Philippians had sent to bring a financial offering to Paul. Apparently, Epaphroditus had become sick on the journey. And Paul commends him for risking his life to support the work of Christ. You know, it's interesting that despite what some of the television preachers tell you, Epaphroditus got sick not as a result of some sin in his life. He became ill doing the will of God. Paul says he almost died until the Lord showed mercy and brought healing. Now, the Lord hasn't guaranteed us permanent health and wealth The Lord is told he'll bless us in the midst of persecution, that he'll walk with us during the midst of difficulty. Philippians chapter 3 begins with a warning to all you Georgia Tech yellow jackets and you Tennessee volunteers and you Florida Gators, all of you SEC and Southern football fans, we have a warning right in the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, beware of dogs. In fact, I think the Greek word is actually spelled D-A-W-G. Actually, rather than bulldogs, Paul is thinking of bad dogs, theological pit bulls. He's talking about false teachers who've taken a bite out of truth. They've mashed faith and flesh They've taken pride in their pedigree and in their procedures and in their performance. The Judaizers that we talked about in Galatians, they had made their way to Philippi as well, spreading the false doctrine of faith plus works. If you wanted to be a Christian, you first had to act like a Jew. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul calls them the mutilation, 
making fun of their insistence on circumcision. You see, what makes a person right with God is not a physical operation, but a spiritual transformation. It's not a work of human effort, the flesh. It is a gift of God's grace. It reminds me of the legalist who said, I believe the Christian life is like rowing a boat. One oar is the law. The other is faith in Christ. And if you drop either oar, you're simply rowing circles. You need both oars. The pastor replied, that's a fine illustration. There's only one problem. You don't get to heaven in a rowboat. Paul says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. If ever a man could have had confidence in the flesh, who could have proved good enough for God through his own efforts, it would have been Paul. For in the next few verses, he takes us on a tour of his religious trophy case. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That is quite a religious resume. If that won't gain God's favor, if that won't get you to heaven, then nothing will. But Paul adds in verses chapter 3, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul gave all that up to be counted in Christ Jesus. You see, the former rabbi realized that a right standing with God can never be obtained or maintained by what we do or don't do. It's only possible through what Christ has done. And you've got to choose. How are you going to approach God? What are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in your flesh, in your own good works and efforts? Or are you going to have faith in Jesus Christ and rely on Him alone for your righteousness? Paul's testimony reminds me of Zachary and Natalie. When they were tots, we would doll them up in these cute little sailor suits. You Remember those, honey? They had these cute little baby sailor suits. They had the little red and the little flap on the back. And we, I think we even had hats for them. And they looked so cute, all dolled up and so adorable. But then you would go to pick them up. And you would realize they had soiled their diapers. And I can remember thinking, man, how can something so cute smell so rotten? This is how Paul felt about himself. Oh, outwardly, he looked so righteous. He was so dolled up and cute. But inwardly, he was so rotten. Paul says that all the trophies of religion that he had accumulated, he considered to be rubbish compared to the merits of Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is ours through faith, a gift through Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated rubbish means dung or manure. Paul worked hard. He worked day and night being good. It was do, 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 do. But compared to the righteousness in Jesus, it all proved to be do, do. (laughs) And here's why righteousness is so important. If you want access to God, you have to be in a right relationship with God. 
Sins need to be forgiven. Favor needs to be bestowed if you want the privilege of knowing God. And this was Paul's goal. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Guys, everybody needs a goal in their life. Everybody needs a master passion. I once saw a poster of a high school soccer player. He was on the ground. He was dirty. He was exhausted. He was wearing a painful expression on his face. And the caption read, No pain, no gain. No gain, no goals. No goals, no scouts. No scouts, no scholarship. No scholarship, no college. No college, no girls. No girls? Get up, man, get up! We all need a goal. We all need a reason to get up. And I can think of none higher, none more fulfilling, none more thrilling than knowing the God who created you and who loves you dearly. Paul says of his goal in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But notice, that's not where he stops. Oh, I'm sure it's cool to know God. It's so cool to know the power of his resurrection to plunge the depths of His wisdom, to feel the surge of His power, to bathe in the healing virtues of His love. What a goal that is. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also wants to know the fellowship of His sufferings. When my kids were young, they told me everything. But as they've gotten older, that's not always the case now. Sometimes I see them bothered. I know they're hurting. And I ask them what's wrong. And they just sort of shrug me off and say, Oh, Dad, everything's cool. Everything will be okay. And kind of keep it to themselves. But that hurts me. I grieve over that. You see, I love my kids more than life itself. And if you love someone, you'll, you'll want them to share with you their concerns and their hurts and their sufferings. You'll want them to share all that's in their heart. Not only their joys, but their hurts as well. You'll perhaps even want to know more so their hurts and their sufferings. And this is how Paul felt about Jesus. He loved the Lord and he wanted to know all that was in God's heart. He wanted to share with Jesus, not just his presence, not just his power, but also his pains and his sufferings and the things that grieved him. Philippians 3 verse 12 Reminds us that none of us have arrived spiritually, nor will we in this lifetime. But Paul presses toward the mark. His goal is to know Jesus. The prize is to be like Him. And Paul is determined to let nothing get in his way. You know, when a basketball team puts on a full court press, the coach expects the team to intensify their efforts. It's a controlled mayhem when a team is pressing. Likewise, we need to press forward in our pursuit of God. Yes, we apprehend God by faith, but faith isn't passive. Faith is aggressive. And here Paul presses. He applies every ounce of his attention toward achieving his goal. Notice Paul comments in verse 13. But one thing I do. Notice he streamlined his interests. It's not these 50 things I dabble in. It's this one thing I do. You know, guys, you can't be an expert at everything. You can't be an expert at gardening and mechanical work. and You can't be an expert in box scores and baseball statistics and also be an expert in the things of God. You have to choose where you put your time. You have to choose what you major on, what you want your passion to be. 
And Paul says, hey, not these 50 things I dabble in, but this one thing I do. Paul has one propelling pursuit, one master desire, and that is to know Jesus, his presence, his power, even his pain. Are we that preoccupied with knowing Jesus? Then Paul adds, forgetting those things which are behind. You know, one of Satan's most effective ways to distract us from knowing God is by bringing up our past failures. Bringing up our past life. You know, Satan is an astute historian of forgiven sins. I read recently about a company called Divorce X. They, they specialize in digitizing old photographs and then expunging the image of your former spouse or boyfriend or mother-in-law. They just wipe them right out. Just take them right out of the picture. But God is also good at doctoring the past. If your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, they are forgotten in the mind of God, and it's time you forgot them too. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. It's been said, there are two things you can't do backwards. Drive a car and live your life. Forget the past. And reach forward, Paul says, to those things which are ahead. In Paul's day, and in our own, there are enemies of the cross. There are folks who are embarrassed by its message. They view the cross as an insult to modern tastes and sensibilities. Oh, that bloody, gory cross. But understand, apart from the cross of Jesus, there is no forgiveness. As in the words of the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 19 describes the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They're earthbound in their logic. They lack a heavenly perspective. Paul says in verse 20, in contrast, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, this world is not our home. Your citizenship, if you know Jesus, is also in heaven. You're just passing through this world. Our lot in life, our hope in the future is not here. It's in heaven. Paul addresses a fallout that had occurred in Philippi in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There was a skirmish going on between two warring women. Euodia and Syntyche were at each other's throats. The Greek grammar suggests that both ladies were at fault in the dispute. And notice here, Paul doesn't offer a rebuke, nor does he even provide instruction. He simply encourages them to do the right thing and get it together. Guys, there is no such thing as a conflict-free family. Disputes and hurt feelings and arguments are inevitable in every family and they will be in every church. Don't be surprised when humans, when even redeemed humans, act like humans. Expect it. And don't let it unravel your faith when it happens. And when settling disputes, sometimes it requires some outside help. Sometimes you need to go and and talk to another friend or pastor That's when the church leaders can step in. And in verse 3, Paul encourages them to do just that. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 are three of my favorite verses. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Guys, we experience peace with God when we receive the Lord's acceptance and forgiveness into our lives. But the peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. The peace of God is literally a peace of God's peace. It's a chip off the old block. It's a slice of his composure, the sense of his invincibility, the surge of his unstoppable love. Here we have one of the few true scriptural formulas. You cannot manufacture God's peace. It's a supernatural work. But there are steps that you can follow to put yourself in a position to experience this peace. And here Paul gives us five steps to follow. Five steps to experiencing the peace of God in your life. Verse 4 tells us the first thing, to rejoice in one thing. Rejoice in one thing. I can't always rejoice in certain circumstances, but I can always rejoice in the goodness and grace and greatness of God. Verse 5 says, be satisfied with few things. The word gentleness here means moderation. It means to live without, to travel light. Get enamored with possessions and earthly ambition and you set yourself up for major disappointment. It said contentment in life is not in getting more, but from expecting less. Verse 6 provides us three more steps. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Turn your cares into prayers. And then fifth, be thankful for anything. There you have it. Five steps to knowing the peace of God. Why don't you try these this next week? Rejoice in one thing, Jesus Christ. Be satisfied with few things. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything and be thankful for anything. And verse 7, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. Verse 8 tells us, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In other words, focus your mind. Don't let it wander. Feed your mind with good stuff, with godly stuff. Stuff that will help it grow. Verse 10 tells us that the Philippians had supported Paul financially, but the supply line had been cut off for some time. That is, until Epaphroditus arrived with the latest gift. And Paul appreciates their offering, but he wants them to know that he doesn't really need their money. Paul has learned the key to contentment. His disposition is no longer influenced by his lot in life, but by the Lord of life. Hey, Lifted up or laid off. Bulging pockets or barren pantry. More than enough or less than seems he needs. Paul can thrive in any situation because Christ has become his strength. Ella Wilcox, she writes these words. One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. 
like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. It's the set of the soul that decides the goal and not the calm or the strife. The Christian has joy even at half-mast because he or she has learned to base our joy on our relationship with Jesus, not on the circumstances of our life. Paul says it best. Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in verse 14 he says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. In other words, Paul didn't need the Philippians' money, but he certainly appreciated it and were thankful that they had given it. And in the next few verses, he recounts their long history of financial support. What excited Paul was not his receiving, but their giving. And he tells them in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. You see, Paul is teaching the Philippians and us that an offering, a gift to a church or to a missionary or to some benevolent organization is actually an investment in that particular ministry. Your gifts are spiritual investments. And that's why it's important. And that's why you're responsible to make good investments. Treat your charitable giving just as you would your financial investments. Always put your money where you believe it's going to accomplish the most good, where it's going to yield the best return. Don't waste your money and throw it away on ministries and on ministers that you don't think are doing a good job. Invest it where you think you're going to get a good and healthy spiritual return. Paul's words encourage us to give, and they remind us that we can never outgive God. He says in verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. Give to God's work and God in turn will see to it that all your needs are supplied. And notice abundantly so, he says, according to his riches. It's amazing. In Paul's closing remarks, he makes an interesting statement in verse 22. He says, all the, saints, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now, remember, Paul is writing from Caesar's palace. No, not, not the hotel in Las Vegas. But he's writing from the royal dungeon in Rome. And remember the purpose he attached to his imprisonment. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, he said that he had been locked up for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, God had put him in prison in order for him to share his faith. And guess what? During his time in the prison, he witnessed to many members of Nero's court, and some of them had become believers. And now they are sending their greetings to the Philippians, as Paul writes. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Paul could have gotten down about his circumstances. Instead, he experienced joy at half-mast, and God used a tough situation to yield tremendous results. Paul concludes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's my prayer for you tonight. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again, Lord, for speaking to our hearts and encouraging us through this letter. Continue to bless us, Lord, as we go through your word and as we allow your word to go through us. We love you, Lord. 
Help us meditate on these things this coming week. Be the people you want us to be. Help us to live our lives, Lord, from the inside out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.